While he's making his Broadway debut in and out of drag in La Caja Foal, today's guest is better known in his native England for his extensive work in the plays of Harold Pinter, as well as the classical repertory, having ventured into musicals only a few years ago, playing Nathan Detroit in an acclaimed production of Guys and Dolls. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to meet Douglas Hodge. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's go with the story of Lacage because you've now done it in three different venues and it began in the very intimate Menier Chocolate Factory in London. Yep, the Menier Chocolate is a 200, I think, 200-seater theatre. I don't think it even has numbers for its seats. People just squeeze in wherever they can on the fire exits and up and down the stairs. Uh, and the Playhouse seats, I think, are about 1,000. So we've got a little bit bigger each time and we're now about 1,500 I think. But tell me, yes you had done the Guys and Dolls and we'll talk more about that but really looking at almost your entire resume doesn't really set you up to say should he be playing Alban slash Zaza in La Caja Foll? What was your response when you were first approached about the role? Well, it is, yeah. If you'd said to me 25 years ago you'd be in America playing a drag queen uh, in a musical, I'd have laughed in your face. I, and um, Not a lifelong desire. Well, <laughs> you know, it does seem to be a lot of English men's desire to dress up in women's clothing, I have to say. So. Uh, but um, there's a whole kind of history of, you know, pantomime and all that. But uh, no, it had never been something that I sort of imagined. And um, I suppose I was much more linked to straight theatre and to Shakespeare. So the idea of musicals, uh, even though I loved going to watch them, was always uh, seemed sort of distant. Um, but I'd always had this sort of secret other life writing music. When I was about 18, I had a contract with EMI to write songs, which sort of came to nothing. Um, I was in various different bands. And I had a sort of secret life playing in clubs and jazz clubs uh, and writing songs for other people. And Terry Johnson, who I'd worked with several times when he as a writer at Hampstead and also as a director at the Royal Court Theatre, which is the sort of home of new writing in England, um, knew about me going off to these little clubs, smoky clubs with my guitar or piano or whatever and singing a few numbers. So he knew that side of my life. Um, and then I did Guys and Dolls, which Nathan isn't really a singing part. It's a classic act. You know, Olivier had played it and things like that. And... Um, you don't really need to be able to sing to do it. So I just loved it. I loved the energy of it. I found it very close to, akin to doing Shakespeare, funnily enough. I found the energy extremely rewarding. I found the professionalism of the dancers um, something that I'd been looking for in in acting companies and had found wanting. Um, and then he offered me this extraordinary script about an incredibly fragile character who, who as I saw it, made this um, sort of suit of armor of drag to protect this fragile and vulnerable person that he was and that he didn't like and that he didn't well that he didn't know who he was so it immediately appealed to me as an actor that there was an extremely vulnerable person with very low self-esteem who was putting on this extraordinary giraffe-like exterior and that he goes on some sort of journey to understand that and then this sheer business of the enormity of the singing um was a sort of triumph of vanity over common sense, really. I just thought, well, if, as long as I can act it, I should be okay and I'll keep going. And I knew I could sing in a different way, um, in a sort of folk and pop way. So uh, here I am. <laughs> well, there's, there, there are a lot of questions raised in, in what you've just said. You referred to, you looked at the script. 
Certainly Lacage, we've had the original production and a revival about five years ago here in America. Had you ever seen the musical of Lacage? No, I'd never seen it. Had you seen the original French films or had you seen the American version, The Birdcage? I think I'd seen a little bit of The Birdcage, but not all of it. And uh, when I was sent the script, I immediately uh, got the French movie out, which I absolutely adore. But it was, to you, a new text. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. And what about the score? Because as you say, it's a different kind of singing. Um, did you go and buy the CD or did somebody give you the CD and say, now go listen to this? Or did you just look at the text and no, say, I know how to sing and I'm going to go do this? No, they sent me the score on a CD of the original production. Uh, so I did listen to that. Um, I suppose I knew I am what I am. I'd heard it sort of disco version in various <laughs> walks of life. Um, and also I'd been very interested in the whole difference between what I would call, you know, musical theatre singing and pop and, and folk singing and the different voices required for that, especially as soon as I did Guys and Dolls. I th one of the things about Guys and Dolls was that they introduced a song for the first time ever. So there, there was a whole thing that Guys and Dolls on stage um, is unchangeable. And when we did our production at the Donmar, uh, they asked um, Mrs. Lesser if I would be able to sing one of Frank Sinatra's songs, Adelaide, in the actual stage version, which had never been done before. And there was a, a, a terrible, terrifying time when she said, I'll come to the previews and watch him, and I'll see then if it works or not. So I, I knew she was in, and I had to do the previews and then wait to hear whether it was going to be kept, and it was kept in the show. So in that version of it now, there is this extra song which um, wasn't in the original stage version but was written specifically for Frank Sinatra. So I did get to sing that and even though Sinatra doesn't have a musical theatre voice, he has a very different sort of crooning uh, voice which I, you know, I, I love and uh, I know pretty well and have listened to a lot. I became very interested in the whole Broadway sound and what you stress and which vowels work and how much vibrato you have, things like that. So that... That really interested me, and I also had a way in with Alban where I thought he wanted to be all these people. He he dearly wants to channel Judy Garland and Shirley Bassey and you know Nina Simone, and I could go on forever. <laughs> Suddenly, your little voice instead yeah. of Alban. Yeah, and I think I think those people in those clubs. I mean, a lot of drag clubs really. It's karaoke and it's lip sync. Mm -hmm. They don't actually sing at all. But they sing, they lip sync Kylie and Madonna and all these icons and Cher. And so I loved the idea of him doing impersonations of those sort of people and finding a voice that way because he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what his real voice is necessarily. And I loved the idea that you might be able to break out a little bit of the Broadway, not Broadway, but musical theatre because it's the same in the West End voice into something a little bit more, I don't know, um, rooted, I suppose. Since we've already mentioned the journey from the Chocolate Factory to the Playhouse to Broadway and the fact that there was a growth in the size of venues, did what you have to do vocally grow as the production moved along? I think um, in muscle tone it has. I think I'm stronger now than I've ever been and, I'm, and the songs are in my bones, so I'm singing them more out than I have ever done. Um, but 
I hope that they're just as intimate as they always were, and the great sort of wrestling match with this production has always been never to let it go into a huge venue that would suddenly stop it being a club and an intimate experience and a, and a simple story about two people. Um, that was what we got at the Chocolate Factory, you know. Uh, it was a love story about a family, and it was in a drag club, and these drag clubs are tiny, often downridden hell holes. Uh, certainly the ones I've been to in England, it's, it's pretty sordid and tawdry, and um, we wanted to keep that feel, and we managed to do that at the Playhouse, and they looked very, very hard and cleverly, I think, to find this beautiful, intimate theatre at the Longacre, uh, which where, the, where I think the play sits better than it's ever sat, actually. Now, another part of the journey, particularly for you, is your co-star. Oh, yeah. Um, because while well, Kelsey Grammer is here in New York, um, how many Georges – did you play opposite multiple Georges in uh, England over I, the two theaters? Yeah, I don't like to sound unfaithful, but I've played with five. I, I, well, three really. <laughs> I um, wasn't suggesting you're no, promiscuous. How dare you? Uh, Philip Quast started the original production with me when I went into the West End. Dennis Lawson took over and now it's the great, inimitable and absolutely adorable Kelsey Grammer. Have each of those men affected your performance and how you play your role? Hugely. Dennis Lawson was um, uh, is smaller than me, for example. And at the end of uh, You're My Arm, he used to leap up in the air and I'd catch him in my arms. Hmm. Uh, so Philip Quast is, I think, bigger than Kelsey. If yeah, he is, and he's also a very operatic baritone, so he has a very sort of romantic and uh, classical lilt to his voice. Uh, Kelsey is much more masculine, I suppose, and more I'm able to be more of a wife to his sort of husband. There's a whole sort of John Wayne tradition sort of struggling to get out in Kelsey all the time, which is incredibly useful for me. You may be the first person to ever compare Kelsey Grammer <laughs> and John Wayne. But. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think he has a great sort of, funnily enough, while being quite camp, he manages to also be the husband in the relationship. And that's that's the first time. And see, in my mind, I think I look like Audrey Hepburn, and I think I'm a petite, gorgeous little frail thing. I know when I, you know, horrifically happen to catch myself in the mirror, I look like Myra Hindley or, you know, some awful truck driver. But in my mind, I am this winsome little flower. Um, and he helps me believe that. Hmm. Do you know how many performances you've given in this show? I don't know. I think it must be over 300, 400. And with the changes of venue, the changes of partner, all of these things, do you feel that Alban has changed oh, in your interpretation? Can you, can you talk about what, what you've discovered over all of that time? I think in my process anyway is always made up of the people I'm around. You know, um, I see acting as essentially reactive. So I would hope – I see it as empathizing, I suppose. So I would hope to put myself in the high heels or shoes of someone else and look at the world through their eyes and then you respond. And my thing about doing theatre is that you can never repeat. You must constantly surprise yourself. So you must risk that you make it anew each night. And if, if it goes absolutely wonderfully – one particular night, you mustn't try and repeat that the next night because you'll fall flat on your face. Mm. So to find those wonderful nights, you have to somehow not plan and surprise yourself. 
And the great thing for me with that is being able to listen and be open to other people's rhythms. And, of course, in America here, the cast is entirely new. I mean, there's nobody uh, – Nick Cunningham is one of the Cajels, but there's nobody that I interact with as an actor uh, that I have ever worked with before. And all their energies are different and their comic timing is different, their rhythms are different, and their sympathies are different. What was it like to come in? I assume there was then a full rehearsal period yeah, here. Cool, so yeah. here you come in having done the show already for yeah. at least 150 performances in two different venues. You know this show. Mm. Were you able to go in and not let go of what had come before but – meld with all of these people who were doing it for the first yeah, time. Yeah, I remember coming on the plane over having a really long talk with myself and saying, listen, the great skill about this particular moment is is going to have to be that I am open to dropping and changing everything that I've dearly fallen in love with. But at the same time, there are certain things I know work, you know, beyond belief. And I know I've la- they've got enormous laughs, sort of unstoppable laughs in the theatre, and they've moved people to the point where I've had streams of letters from people that you know about their lives having changed and things like that so there was essential things that i i suppose i knew i knew worked but i knew that the director knew they worked too um sometimes you go to a read-through even if you're playing i don't know you could be playing coriolanus and you could go to the read-through and you could do this first read-through and you think this is it this is absolutely it. i know this man inside out and i gotta be very careful now not to damage my work as i go through the rehearsal process and there's a point when you're ready and you have to realize what that is. And I'm a great one for adding and adding and, you know, and, and, and you finally mess up the, the, the instinctive thing that you had. So it was trying to be mature enough to keep on to that instinct but also being open enough to be able to allow, say, Kelsey to say, this will be incredibly funny if I do this. And me saying, well, it used to get an enormous laugh here. And some of, the, some, some of what's happened, I suppose, is that I've given away quite a few moments that were perhaps bigger for me in England but are now much more part of, you know, they're bigger, better moments for the piece and they're more shared, I Mm. I suppose. Well, we started off with you saying that 25 years ago you didn't think you'd be on Broadway performing in drag. Let's go back even (laughs) further and say when you were a child, a young man, did you always have dreams of being on the stage i i did i think from about the age of 12 i funnily enough i saw oliver i think and i remember because there were children in it i thought well i could do that the thing i had i mean that does link completely to this moment in time is that i can impersonate anybody anybody i met whether it was a man or a woman i could do their voices or the way they sat or talked or walked and i could do that all the way through school and i seem to be able to do it at will whoever it was so it got me through an enormous amount of life it got me girlfriends friends it got me out of trouble at school it got me made you know it was a wonderful thing and i ended up doing i mean i nobody in my family had ever been on the stage i don't think we'd ever been to the theater um to see any plays or anything um certainly when i went to rada i'd i think i'd seen two plays in my life um but i had an act in little social clubs Doing impersonations. But have we skipped past the National Youth Theatre? Yeah. Which is not something I think most people here are very familiar with. So if if you could tell people a little of what it is and then the fact that you were part of it. It still exists and it's it's, it's it's sort of as a bigger diaspora now than it had when I was there. But it was essentially the only – I mean Michael Croft, who's the reason I'm an actor really, was a sort of vocational English teacher who set up this national – 
youth theatre and the phrase youth theatre didn't exist until he thought of it and uh, like-minded kids between 16 and 20 years old came to London and he directed them in a couple of Shakespeare's and that absolutely exploded and when I was 16 um, my English teacher said to me you know there's this thing called the National Youth Theatre you, you should go along and you should audition for them and so I learned a piece of Richard II I turned up at the door. I couldn't remember any of my Richard II because I was so nervous and I ended up doing my entire impersonations act, which I'd been doing in clubs, and Marcus said, you're in. Hmm. And I then went to the National Youth Theatre every year for six years, every summer, and he just turned me on to Shakespeare, just turned, made Shakespeare more interesting than football. I mean, it was the sexiest, most muscular extraordinary thing and I loved the verse I loved the way that the verse worked I loved the, word, the way that words were sort of muscles I, I found it incredibly visceral and I did um, five or six productions you know working my way up to the leading parts and once I'd sort of finished that I then became a director there and I then moved on to the council there and I've been involved with it all my life hmm. um, it's a very different thing now because there's a sort of youth theatre and theatre camps everywhere you look but there wasn't then and at the end of my sort of six summers there, he said, you know, you should audition for RADA. Well, you auditioned, if I, what I read is correct, you auditioned for three drama schools I did, initially yeah. and got into none. Yes. <laughs> so that takes you down a peg. Then yeah. a year later, auditioned for all three again and got into all three. Yeah, that's true. Did anything happen in that year to you that you think – <laughs> changed what do you, think you or was it I don't know. I, yeah i i grew up i mean i think i i auditioned and i didn't have anyone to act i didn't know i didn't know anything about anybody and um i was still at school uh i was just finishing what you know the, what they call your a levels i was 18 i didn't get in everywhere i went and joined the social services became a social worker with um delinquent children and worked with them for a year grew up got a few girlfriends you know, left home, auditioned, totally different person. And I had something to offer and uh, and I got in them all. And so, I, yeah, I, they were right. I just wasn't ready. I just absolutely wasn't ready. And I've, 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 if I'm honest, I think my whole life I've been a bit late coming to anything, including Broadway. <laughs> well, but you say that, but what's interesting is, again, if, if it's correct, I read that you left RADA early. Yes, I did. I did. I shouldn't have done that probably. I, so, so you weren't late in this case. You were You were rushing out the door. Yeah, I rushed out the door because I decided not to act. It wasn't because um, I was ready to carry on with my career in a big way. I uh, Rather, at that time, there were 23 people in your term. I mean, my term was extraordinary. Gifted was Kenneth Branagh, Catherine Hunter, um, Mark Hadfield. I mean, enormous John Sessions, people who have become extraordinarily powerful, influential people in the business. But with, it was a sort of very, very insular, inward-looking, apolitical, um, rather earnest, unhumorous, I felt. Um, and I was angry and political and um, I felt I was from a different class. I thought it was a bourgeois setup. I didn't want to be – I wanted to make my own theatre and um, – I didn't want to just sort of come out and then do a Shakespearean voice at the RSC and have that kind of career. I wanted theatre to be more immediate and to be about today. And so in a fit of peak, I went to see the um, principal, who was a great man, actually, and I said, well, I just can't bear this anymore. I'm going to have to go. And he said, well, I know you're going to be a major force in the theatre one day, so off you go. And I think if he just flattered me a little bit more, I'd have stayed, but I went. <laughs> you went and... 
So then what happened? Well, I went and Michael Croft, the other gods, my life is made up of these people who looked after me, who ran the National Youth Theatre, phoned me up and said, I hear you've just left RADA. I'm going to give you an equity card. You can take it or leave it. Just come and do this job. Then you've got an equity card. And if you don't want to act, you can... Um, you can go off after that. So I went and I did the Scottish plays, a couple of small parts in that, and I never stopped working since. Hmm. What was <laughs> what? What would you consider your first big break in terms of really getting you attention uh, over there? Well, I suppose I was locked. I then went through an extremely old-fashioned form of theatre where I went off into regional theatre and I worked at Nottingham, York, Birmingham. All sorts of places all around Britain playing. I played Romeo three times. I played Hamlet. I played Coriolanus. I played all these enormous roles, the Norman in the Norman Conquests, um, while all my peers were on the telly. And uh, I was sort of living off cornflakes and um, living like a student. And they were, you know, driving these fast cars. And when I came back to England, I did a series on the television called Capital City, which um, took off, really. And I became... <laughs> I became a sort of heartthrob, much to my horror, hmm. um, for about two years. And then that series finished, and then I went back into um, Shakespeare again, I suppose. Well, again, I think these would be fairly early credits, but you did play Coriolanus for mm. the director Deborah Warner at yeah. the Almeida, which is certainly, again, over time, grown in its reputation, but oh. but certainly a respected company. And you played Edmund in Lear opposite... Anthony, Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins. I did, yeah. And this yeah. you were you were how old when you were doing this? Twenty four, yeah. So so whatever you were doing regionally, you had some significant London grads. I think uh, yeah, I think they came just after. I did sort of two or three years of playing these big Shakespearean roles and then I came in Coriolanus with Deborah Warner at that time. It was her Kick Theatre Company, which was a fringe company. It started in Edinburgh. It was the beginning of her career and it was an incredible production. I mean it, we could have carried on for years doing that production. Hmm. And I was sort of plucked out of that and then did Edmund at the, at the National, which was extraordinary with Tony Hopkins. Um, and then I had a sort of film moment where I did three or four films after that, which were simply the worst films I've ever seen or anybody else has ever seen. And each film, someone would say, this is it now. You're going to Hollywood and your career is going to, your life is going to be very, very different. And they were that, those moments and none of the films took off. And I think if they had have done, I'd have had a very different life. But they, I was unlucky, I think, with those films. And so I then went back into – and then I started to work with Pinter for the next well, years. Well, since you bring us there, I mean you nonchalantly say, and then I started to work with Pinter. I mean Harold Pinter is one of the great dramatic voices of the last century uh, and has been recognized as such. How did your work with Pinter begin? Well, it was um, – it was No Man's Land at the Almeida, interestingly enough, um, which was at that point, the Almeida was, I suppose, the equivalent of the Donmar now. Um, or still is, to some extent. But it was, it was certainly doing the most interesting work. Um, David Laveau was directing it. I think the interesting thing about it was that Harold, nobody had dared do No Man's Land because uh, Ralph Richardson and um, Gilgood had played the two main parts, and so nobody wanted to be compared to them. And Antonia Fraser one of the greatest women I've ever had the great fortune to meet, his wife knew that Harold wasn't writing and that if she could get him on the stage, the juices might start flowing again. And in a fantastically clever and manipulative way, she said, why don't you play Hurst on stage as you've always wanted to do? And then that production will come back to life again. So she, he did that with Paul Eddington and I came in as Foster. 
Gorn Granger played uh, the other part, and at that point, the Almeida was a tiny, a bit like the Menier Chocolate Factory, you're all in one dressing room. In fact, it, I've often said they, they remind me of them enormously. And in this dusty, brick-ridden, terrible little dressing room at the Almeida, the four of us sat each night, and Harold, frankly, while he was a national monument, was equally as nervous as I was. So it was a great leveller, and we had a wonderful time, a fantastic time in my life, and we became great, great friends. Now, people forget that Pinter appeared as an actor, that he also directed, um, but if this was his first time on stage in quite a while, it certainly might explain the nervousness, but what's it like to be in a play with the guy who wrote it, and it's not a new play. It's a play that mm. that had succeeded, as you say. Ralph Richardson and John Gielgud are, you know, certainly set a tone. Well, it was, you know, uh, Harold was, I mean, Harold, there were three great, you know, there's my father and there's Michael Croft and there's Harold Pinter, really, and these three men have, have, have as we've already sort of said, have uh, absolutely given my career a rudder, really. And, um, Harold's etiquette in the rehearsal room was second to none. His his uh, manners, his politeness, if he was acting, he would never, ever be addressed as the writer. He would always defer to the director. If you worked with him and you were in the play and he was the writer, he would only ever talk to the director so the notes would never come through him but only through the director so that if the director disagreed with something, it always came from a common source so there was never any confusion. He was absolutely exemplary in all of those things. Um... He had such sort of celerity, such precision, such um, clarity, really. I've never known anyone be so clear about what was right or wrong. The hardest thing about rehearsing is that he famously wouldn't explain or describe anything. There's a, there's a wonderful story. I'm sure you know a wonderful story about him and Aikbourne, where Aikbourne, I, I mean, Aikbourne's sort of great hero is Pinter, and Aikbourne was directing, um, I can't think which which it was, the... Uh, birthday party or something like that and Harold as a young man went up and said um, you know to, to look at the play and Aikbourne said can you just tell us a little bit about the background of this character we just can't understand where he's come from could you just tell us something about this particular person and why you know when he comes in there where he's been and Harold went mind your own business <laughs> so the, life, the private lives of his characters was completely private and nothing to do with anybody else and couldn't be tinkered or tampered with. So what you had to do is sort of make up your own backstory. Uh, he didn't want those things to be finite, I think, because they sort of diminished the reverberations of, um, of, you know, of the poeticness of the piece. But, I mean, he was a great man, a great man, and, my God, I miss him. Well, over the course of that, that production of No Man's Land was 93, as, as I have it. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the next seven years, you were in productions Moonlight, mm-hmm. Kind of Alaska, The Lover, The Collection, Betrayal, and The Caretaker. Yeah, there's the radio as well. I did, um, I did quite a lot of – I did The Trial as a movie, which he'd written. I did um, – uh, the um, oh God, what's it? The Proust screenplay. Uh, Remembrance of Things Past. Yeah, I did that on the radio with him. We also did several of those on the radio. Um, what is the experience of as an actor? We often hear about directors and playwrights having long-term relationships. Actors having long-term relationships with a playwright are not necessarily common. I don't. I don't know whether Pinter ever said to you, I actually wrote this with you in mind, 
but clearly he had say over yeah, he with your being in this. Yeah. So, so what was that all about? Would you say with Moonlight he did write it with you in mind? I think so. I think he would never – his process was um, – I mean Harold essentially had a sort of untrammeled access to his subconscious. So once he wrote something, he wrote it in a great flood. And it didn't. Uh, he wouldn't change a word, so he would never say, "Ah, oh, this would suit Doug," or "This would suit." You know, I, it, it wasn't that clear. I can remember telling him a story about a referee who'd lost complete grip of a game of football that I was playing in, and it turned into a sort of farce where the, only the players could remember the score and the referee couldn't, and he more or less caused total and utter, you know, revolution on the pitch. It was the absolute opposite of what a referee should do. And that little story in the dressing room, I know distilled itself through various other stories of different other people and memories of his own into Ralph the Referee in Moonlight. And, you know, it's that poetic process where real life, like the whole of Betrayal, to be honest, gets distilled into a piece of poetry or a piece of, of theatre is, is absolutely fascinating because bits of it are verbatim and bits of it are just improved upon or honed or, you know, finessed in mm. a certain way that suits that, character, that person's style. I think my thing about Harold was that we came from a similar, we were both quite, well, we were both quite heterosexual, uh, I don't know, straight men who loved sports, uh, we both were interested in boxing, we, we liked that kind of stuff, but we also adored words and poetry. So we had an instinct, and we also both came from similar backgrounds in a way, um, I mean, I remember, Harold, we were sitting in a bar and someone got a bit feisty with us and Harold turned around and said to me, he said, I could take my glasses off faster than anyone. <laughs> he was about to hit him. <laughs> and, um, you know, but at the same time, he was an extremely sensitive uh, soul and extremely um, poetic and, and had an extremely tender side to his, uh, his, his being. Um, and I think when you're an actor, what you always do is you just try and get to the source of the river and then not get in its way, you know. So what you want to do in the end is become invisible. You don't want anyone to see your acting at all. You just want the thing to land in the lap of the, the audience as powerfully as they possibly can so that they go, oh, my God, I, f I felt that or I, I recognize that person or I feel this too. And that if they're, that's why the whole awards thing is, is unnerving a bit because if they're noticing how good you are, yeah, probably you're getting in the way a little bit of the piece because they're noticing you and they're not having direct access to the to the author. Um, I mean, I think in my defence, <laughs> he says quickly, I'm playing a woman, so everyone knows I'm a man. So there is a kind of uh, remove from what mm. I'm doing, you know. But I, um, ideally, you just have direct access to what the person's thoughts and, and feelings are without thinking how good they are while they're doing it. You talk about the source and you've told the story about Al Hakeborn being rebuffed with a point-blank question. But over the course of time, you, you had access to the source, namely Pinter himself, mm -hmm. to – you know, and maybe you couldn't sit down and say, tell me about this. But over the time, were there things that emerged through your friendship that gave you an understanding of the work – that other people might not have had. Well, hopefully, I mean, I directed quite a bit of his work. I directed uh, at the same time. I directed a film of Victoria Station, and I directed um, the Dumb Waiter, and I directed all his sketches. And so, during in that in that role, we often discussed. You know, when you were allowed to discuss more about what were the initial spurs for things, 
Um, I think my feeling was with him that his ear was absolutely wonderful. I mean, he could hear the way people spoke on snatch conversations on the tops of buses and in cafes and canteens and things like that. And he really didn't want it to be a piece of archaic museum-like music. And there was a tendency for it to be a sort of, you know, open space you know, a very uh, experimental kind of musical thing that didn't move anyone, but everyone just was told it was brilliant and therefore they liked it. And actually he didn't want that. He wanted it to be organic and real and familiar. And if I'm honest, I remember having an argument with Trevor Nunn saying, well, the great, you know, Harold is closer to Noel Coward, in fact, and Noel Coward adored Harold Pinter's work. And they were both cross-arch writers and they loved to conceal the feelings and... Um, you know, the underground reverberations of what they were feeling with little sentences and things that they might say. Both both writers did that to a degree, and I think he's closer in that sort of more open tradition than he is to Strindberg or to Ibsen, say. And, and it, it, you know, later on he was more experimental. But he never wanted it to, to be precious. And I think that's what I, um, you know, I always got from him, was that I remember doing two of the tramps, and I said, well, could the tramps wear trainers? And he went, well, do tramps wear trainers and i said well they do now if you have a look around they didn't in the 60s when you wrote this but they do now you know and um he went yeah you're right you're right you know he loved mm. all that uh, that it was still immediate and alive well since you mentioned it um you have directed you you know we've, we've we've talked a bit about the music we're going to come back to that but you directed a bit you said back when you were at the uh, the youth theater mm-hmm. you directed some of pinter's work is You've done other directing. You've done um, yeah, Fugard's just... plays, um, uh, Bryony Lavery play. Mm-hmm. Um, does that appeal to you differently than acting? As more than acting, something you do on yeah. occasion. What, no, what is that? What is that fuel in you? Well, certainly, I think um, when I left Rada, I think I thought. I want to direct, you know, I can't stand this. I, I, I want to form my own company and get some friends together and do things how I think they should be done. And um, and I had a sort of manifesto in my head, if not written down, and all that happened was I was offered wonderful part after wonderful part, that would, so I just kept acting. Um, then at a certain point, once I was working with Harold, various people were asking me to direct, and I thought, well, I'd love to direct some of his work, and I did. And then finally, Michael Grandage at the Donmar... Uh, offered me the job of associate director at the Donmar. Uh, and I went there in, uh, for two years, the last two years as associate. And uh, so the, the job was, you know, to direct one play a year, which I did, which was Dimitris, the Athol Fugard play. And before that, I did um, the an absurdist season of plays. Um, so, yeah, it's very much a part of my life, very much. I was interested um, that simultaneous with performing the title role in Titus Andronicus, The Globe, <laughs> you were directing a 1940s piece, See How They Run, which is a light comedy. Um, how did you balance playing in this bloody epic mm. with finding the sensibility to keep actors light and frothy. Well, they sort of miraculously uh, helped one another. I think Titus became funny because of the experience and see how their own was bedded in reality because of Titus. But the truth was Titus Andronicus, you know, he he, he, um, 
chops off his hand, his daughter has his, is raped, has her tongue cut out. He spends three hours, really, in the deepest grief, which I used to dread nightly, if I'm honest. I mean, there couldn't be. That was the part I played before Alban um, at the Globe, and it was outdoors. Sometimes it's raining, and it was a magnificent experience, and I'd happily go back there and do another great bleeding chunk of Shakespeare. Well, let's, let's talk about the Globe for a minute, and then we'll talk about how you balanced it with a light comedy. Um, as you said, it's outdoors. Um, you've got people standing right in front of you. It is yeah. that effort to recreate what m- people believe the experience of theater in Shakespeare's day was. As an actor, is it fundamentally different working in front of an audience in that space than any other space? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think actually that space is more honest than, say, Regent's Park Open Air or some of the more tourist open air ventures. You don't have any mics. The weather really does make a difference. Well, extraordinary accidents can happen. If you're doing a matinee, there's no lighting. Um, I mean, in Titus Andronicus, 20 to 30 people fainted every performance when I chopped my hand off in front of you. They'd just be standing and they'd drop to the ground. And well, I've heard of people fainting at the Globe simply <laughs> anyway. because it's a, it's a daytime performance yeah, and, that's and true. it's hot yeah, and they just they drop. Yeah. In this case, it was the yeah. effect of your performance. Well, I think, yeah, I remember when Olivier did Titus, they used to, he used to gauge how good his performance was by how many people fainted. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they, good I mean, to have goals. You're absolutely right, though, just like Wimbledon, if it's a you know, bleaching hot day and you're standing for three hours, you're easily able to okay, People are passing out. So to add a bit of gore to that, I think it just tips them over the edge. <laughs> Do the actors on the Globe stage, is there is there more direct interaction between the actor and audience? Yeah, or more of a thing? Well, in England, we have this sort of pantomime tradition, which is very interesting. I've talked to Kelsey quite a lot about this because it doesn't exist here. And, um, you know, it's, it's essentially the first theatre that everybody sees. I mean, my children and all children, that's the first Christmas you go and see a panto and there's a man dressed as a woman who's the dame and she's pretty akin to <laughs> Alban, about, you know, 40 years old, 50 years old and uh, sings a song and there's uh, some good-looking young people who sing a few hit songs. There's a broker's man who do a sort of comedy act and... And it's all woven through some classic story that we've all heard yeah, of, it's but a it's a complete tale. takeoff of yeah. that. So it's always a fairy tale. I mean, Ian that, McKellen you know, was in Widow played Twanky. the Widow Twanky yeah. a couple of years yeah. ago in a panto. Yeah. Um, and the essential thing is that you have various calls that you shout out. So you always say he's behind you, and you always say, oh, no, he's not, when someone says, oh, yes, he is. And the whole audience scream and shout and are involved, and the whole point is to get them roaring and chanting and then at the end there's always a song with a songboard that everybody sings and it has actions and everyone goes completely wild so it's an extraordinary strange english um eccentricity and there's but it is a tradition that goes through british theater and there's certainly something at the globe where if you do a soliloquy i people have can hiss you or can shout and i, I remember coming when i first came on my first performance i was brought on on this great sort of Deus through the crowd with great drums and smoke as Titus. And my first line is, Hail Rome. And I shouted, Hail Rome. And everyone went, Hail Titus back. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Oh, this is wonderful. We're going to have a great night. Hmm. And um, they just jumped into it, you know. And also, people would arrive with pizza and, you know, oranges, and they, you know, they walk in and out. They don't like it. It's five pounds to stand up. It's, you know, it's five dollars to go and see theatre. So people don't 
they're bored, they just leave, you know. Um, and you can see them very well looking at you. I mean, I've been trained my whole life to pretend that the audience aren't there. I mean, it, it is a sort of essential part of Pinter's world that he would often say, somebody coughed, somebody coughed, you know, um, because you sort of are in this little capsule, whereas at the Globe, you're doing a speech, you see someone yawn, you know, in front of your face. You know you're not acting well enough. Hmm. Um, so you've got to up your game. Well, who was, I believe it was, Maybe Ralph Richardson, who said the art of acting is, is keeping people from coughing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah. Um, That's a great quote. So now, I, I hope I credit it right. Someone will will let it, let it me know if I didn't. But um, so we, I was asking about then. So you're doing this rousing outdoor bloody epic. How do you go in and do this – direct this this intimate little piece? Well, um, it's not that intimate. It's nine characters all dressed as a vicar running around the stage. I mean it's pure farce. It's one of the greatest right. farces ever written. And it's like a piece of uh, precision engineering. You know, as far as I'm concerned, farce is essentially about focus, as, as comedy is really. I mean you essentially have to know exactly where to look when. And if someone scratches your head when somebody else is doing something, you won't get that laugh. And if, if, you, if the audience have been – incredibly um, directed as to where to look when, then it will work. And so, I mean, I just loved doing it. It was great fun and it made us roar with laughter and we spent every single rehearsal. It was a sort of tonic hmm. to the three hours of deep grieving. I mean, I, the Titus starts sobbing. I also chose to play Titus with uh, Parkinson's so that, you know, you can have that... This is not, this is not great radio, where his head is always shaking... And there's two conditions. You're, you're doing your Catherine Hepburn impersonation yes, for me at the moment. There's two conditions. One is where you nod and you go, yes, 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 yes. And the other one is you go, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. And I did no, 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 <laughs> which after about an hour, you begin to lose your balance and, and go slightly insane. But I, so, yeah, it was a great panacea, panacea to, to be able to get away from that role. <laughs> Now, in talking about those, I have skipped past Guys and Dolls and I don't want to do that because that really was, as you say, it's – the part of Nathan is not a big singing role because of the mm. way the show was originally written. Sue there was me, a song me. that was added for you and met with the approval of Joe Lesser. Um, <sighs> but even with your background in doing musicals, um, when you were approached to do Guys and Dolls, was it a piece you knew and was it – the part you wanted to play. No, it wasn't a piece I knew. Um, I suppose I'd seen the movie with Marlon uh, Brando. I, I, so I, I don't think I'd ever seen it uh, in the theatre. Mm. Um, but I immediately knew when I read the script that it was, he was a, you know, a hustler and a gangster and I kind of come up, come up with anything and kind of trying to get the game on and I knew that guy very well and I loved the whole New Yorkness of it, the whole kind of, you know, boy, the Veronica and all that kind of, the way they talk and that. So I sort of knew immediately how exciting that could be. And, um, yeah, and Michael Grandage, who's a great director, of course, was, was sort of leading the, the ship. So, uh, and actually, uh, Rob Ashford, too, is the choreographer, which is thrilling for me, you know, to watch all that. One thing about that production was that, again, in a small venue, you had Ewan McGregor as Sky Masterson, mm-hmm. and he has a certain level of film fame, and there was a lot of attention just for the sheer fact that he was back on stage and doing a musical and all of that. 
and Jen Krakowski came over from America. I don't yeah. know how well she's known in England, of course, over here. Anybody who knows she was known from Mobile, really, but that was about it. Yeah. Um, was there extra attention at times, unwanted attention on the show because of, of the celebrity involved or were you able to just focus on the work? I think we were able to focus on the work because Ewan is so uh, focused and um, I mean Jane's magnificent. She was, she was an extraordinary person to work with. Um, I think the difference for Ewan was that he was sort of filmed every time he stepped onto the stage by what happens now is everyone has a camera in their phone and everything's on YouTube within seconds of you doing something and you, and you can see when you're acting all these little lights come up and it's very hard to police in the theatre and to be honest, what can you do about it? I think that was distracting for him. Um, somebody asked me the other day, you know, I was at one of the, I think I was at the Drama Desk Awards and someone said, how do I feel about all these, you know, uh, big movie stars on Broadway and, uh, you know, Denzel Washington and um, Scarlett Johansson and Hugh Jackman, all these people that have been nominated for different things. I mean, my feeling about that is that it's their, you know, they don't have to put themselves in the firing line. They really don't have to put their head above the parapet. And if they choose to do that in a place to improve their craft, then all power to them. And if someone like Scarlett Johansson brings one more person into a theatre who wouldn't have come otherwise, then I think that's a success. Um, and they're, they're, you know, they're learning very publicly. And in fact, they're often, it's very easy to shoot someone down because they, you know, they've been working in a different atmosphere and in a different environment. So if they choose to put themselves, like Kelsey has done to some degree, you know, in that firing line, then I've, I've nothing but admiration for them. Yet Kelsey began his career doing Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, and he, he has had, real he theater had chops. years of, of yeah. theater chops. As frankly, I mean, when you because you bring this up, so many people I get asked this question because of my role at the wing, and and what I'm quick to point out is, for most of these people, they are not novices. They have no significant stage experience. Denzel Washington, you know, has plenty of stage experience. I suppose from a young what age. I'm saying is, if I was Ewan McGregor, you don't necessarily have to step out of doing being paid millions of pounds in in wonderful movies to go on stage and sing. You know, um, in now that we're we're jumbling around a little bit, I was fascinated to, to read that you've been in a production. Um, by the Knee-High Theater that was done at the National. Uh, people may be familiar with Knee-High because of their m- long-running in multiple countries production of Brief Encounter. And yeah, that's just They did this adaptation of A Matter of Life and Death. Now, Matter of Life and Death is not a film that's well-known in the U.S. Um, oh. it's, it's not part of the standard repertory. Is it... It, not unlike Brief Encounter. I mean, Brief Encounter is probably better known here. But what I learned when I was in England is that everybody's seen Brief Encounter. Yeah. You just – you can't be English and not have seen Brief Encounter. No, it's the equivalent of, uh, say, Wonderful Life, right. with, you know, uh, Jimmy Stewart or whatever. Yeah. So um, what what was the process of working with them? Because it's such an inventive approach to putting movies – on stage. Yeah, they don't just do that. They put Shakespeare on stage. I mean, yeah. essentially, Nehi is a circus company. Um, and they live in Cornwall, and they have an enormous barn, a couple of barns where they make all their work. Hmm. And a lot of their work begins as what they call R&D, where they have a couple of three or four weeks of research and development. And they have a kind of great crew of people, all of whom live in Cornwall, who uh, can tumble, juggle, trapeze, aerialists. uh, And very, very few of them have any interest in the sort of oral uh, spoken tradition. Nearly all of them can sing. All of them can play different instruments. And they're like a sort of storytelling company, a circus storytelling company. So my feeling was I'd done 
Guys and Dolls, which was a great departure for me, and I loved the sort of it re-energized my own interest in in my career. I went straight to the Globe to do Titus, which was a, an extraordinary event, and became this big thing in London with everyone fainting and all the rest of it. And I was looking for something else then, and I thought to go and join the circus would be fantastic. Um, it's a film. I, I, the film is truly on my top ten of all films, as it is most people in England, I suspect. It's a good, extraordinary story and very, very adventurous filmmaking. Um, but the thing that had happened was that Heitner, Nick Heitner, had come to the National, and one of the, his innovations was to bring in these new companies who were puppet makers, circus people, and bring them to the National Theatre so that the Hopefully, you know, the National became truly national and people sampled not just great classics and the Ibsens and the Pinters and the... But they were seeing the great circus and that's how War Horse was born. Uh, War Horse, which is an extraordinary production of, um, you know, about the life of a horse and the horses are all done with puppets and it is a bit like Lion King. It's quite incredible. It's coming here later. That was a puppet company who were invited to the National by Heitner and he invited uh, Nehi and Nehi came and uh, sort of brought their rug and their sofas and their cushions and their fluffy balls and their candles and moved into the enormous rehearsal room there. And I moved in with them as the sort of uh, legit actor who was terrified every moment and they were juggling and backflipping and somersaulting. And, um, yeah, and I, and I just sort of rolled with it, really. <laughs> well, was it the case? Were you the, the only legit actor or did they bring in other cast no, members had, from outside uh, the company? they had... I suppose they had about two others, actually. Yeah, the two sort of leading roles were, because they were sort of text-based, were, um, but everyone else was their, their sort of natural company. Hmm. Well, we've talked about uh, your music from the beginning of this conversation and playing in smoky rooms, um, <laughs> but you've now gone and written a musical. I have, yeah. Uh, called Meantime. Can you... Can you Tell, talk a little about that and and where it's at. Yeah, it's thrilling, really. I mean, essentially, that when I was associate director at the Donmar, um, part of my brief, as I saw it, really, was to sort of introduce new work or new writing and new ideas and um, to just begin to germinate new things. And um, Michael knew that I'd written a lot of music and I... I suppose my original idea was I'd been doing Three Sisters in the West End and I'd written a little song for each of the characters at home, um, a sort of little folk song. So I quite liked the idea of doing a domestic musical at the Donmar where it was a sort of update of Three Sisters and each of them had a little folk song or something to sing. Uh, and I like the whole Russian tradition anyway, that you have a play and then someone plays a band and there's an accordion and, you know, and a guitar and things like that. Um, so they uh, backed a workshop. And, of course, being the Donmar, we got this sort of, you know, A-list cast who arrived. Uh, and I spent a week with them and a guy called Ashlyn Ditter who writes the Catherine Tate show and has written various musicals. He's a sort of sketch writer for TV uh, and have written various films, not musicals. Um, he was a great friend of mine and he came in to write the book. And within a week, it had expanded from this little Three Sisters thing to set in modern day and set in an airport. Uh. <laughs> now, you said you did this while you were at the Donmar. Mm. You've been away from the Donmar for a few years. So where is where is the show at now? Well, then it became just too big to be even on the Donmar stage. Um, and a producer called Matthew Byam Shaw who's produced many things here uh, and who produced See How They Run that I directed in the West End, 
bought it basically and loved it and said, okay, I'd like this to go much bigger so that we have a real ensemble. It, it, because it's set in an airport, the whole idea is that the people who work and live and come through and are passing and leaving and, and arriving in the airport are the ensemble, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of set at JFK or Heathrow or one of those big glass and chrome places. Um, and that developed. We had then another workshop with a series of actors, and uh, we made a sort of album of the uh, of the music, but not you know, and just for our own internal purposes. Uh, and then we were all set really to start going, and it looked like I was going to come to America to do uh, La Cage Fall, which put everything on hold. Uh, at which point I then said, well, my sense is it could be much more fun to develop it in America than in England because there is at least a process there and new musicals hardly ever happen in England and there isn't anyone to back it and there seems to be a, a much greater sense of, um, I don't know, willingness and uh, adventure here than there is there. And um, and also I was away from home, so I don't have access to it anywhere. So the whole idea is that I get this on and we get going, and then what I would re- really love to do is, is have a full workshop here during the days um, and see where that leads. Did you write a part for yourself? There is a part that I think I'm too old to play, I, but I don't really want to play it. Um, but each time we've done a workshop, I've ended up singing it because it, I've written the songs, so the, vo- the songs are so in my voice that... Um, and I'm pretty choosy about who else would do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure there are many people who could sing it, but yeah. You know, it's interesting as, as we're talking about musicals and, and English tradition and American tradition, you say there aren't a lot of new musicals and the, the, the workshop tradition that we have now in America isn't as familiar in England, yet you've talked about uh, the pantos over there. Um, certainly there's music hall that is very much the English tradition. We have these classic Broadway musicals um, mm. that that form the base of what we do. So where where does your own writing fall in terms of these various traditions? Is Do you think you've written an English musical? Have you written an international musical? Have you written maybe an American musical? I think part of the original spur for it was that I did feel a lot of the time that when I went to musicals, it was as if they hadn't listened to any music that had been that I'd been listening to or that had been in the charts or had been part of our lives and that it was stuck within a certain period. You know, there was... There was um, I mean, even if you look at Lacage, I mean, the Beatles had disbanded by the time that was written. And there's no evidence of that. I mean, I, mean, I don't God, the last person on this planet I would criticise, and it isn't a criticism, is Jerry Herman, because I think he's a genius, you know, one of the great men of American theatre. Um, but my feeling was that the music that I listened to and the sort of narrative songs that I was listening to, whether they were, I suppose, in a more a Rufus Wainwright way or a Bob Dylan way or, you know, whatever, I'm trying to think of, um, I never really heard unless it was sort of back catalogue ma- musicals, you know, unless they were kind of pop song hmm. musicals. Um, so I was quite interested in writing songs that weren't, you know, discursive narrative soliloquies for people, um, but that had some more influences from the kind of music that I listened to, whether it was reggae or, you know, a rock or um, pop or, or musical theatre. And that that should link into the voice of the people. So that it should be very, very modern. Um, and essentially I wanted to write something about, I suppose, about love. It's about love across 50 years, really, and how you 
try and maintain relationships and hmm. whether that's possible. Well, to loop back to Lacage, uh, when early on when the show was announced, it was also announced that uh, six months into the run, Kelsey was going to play Alban, and subsequently it was announced that he would not be doing that. It was not announced that this was going to be like um, like say the True West we had here, where the actors were going to trade off. It wasn't said that you would play play George at that point, but. Having done the show this long, would you have any desire to play Georges? No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I, I you know, I um, yeah, I know all those stories. The, the truth is, I think that uh, when we were offered the contract, I didn't know whether I could get schooling for my children. I didn't know whether I would be happy here or it's a long way to be away from home. Um, and Kelsey was very interested in the Alban role had seen a production and wanted to work with me and it seemed great that he would then take over and that I would come home um, we also didn't know if it would be a success or if it would be taken or if people would like it or, or how long it would last so my feeling was that I should just see after six months and if I then was really thinking about bringing my family here and, and all those sort of things, it, it's a major major upheaval in my life um, they've now asked me to stay on I'd dearly love to stay on but there are all sorts of complications about schooling for my youngest and my eldest has just got into college and, you know, so that, and my mum, <laughs> you know, there are real implications for me about uh, my own personal happiness and I'm trying to balance those and make them work. And ideally I will stay and will stay in the same roles because I, I, I couldn't, you know, Kelsey creates this sort of launch pad for my performance every night and he's, he's a dream to work with and a, and a wonderful guy. I mean, a true star, actually, I feel, because he's a, capable of such generosity. And, um, but I think, no, I, it wouldn't, you know, I've sort of, I know the musical Inside Out, I love the part of our band, that tests every bone in my being and, I've, and I spend the days hobbling around, hardly able to talk or walk because I'm so exhausted by it and I... I think anything other than that, I would, I would always have my eye on, you know, I, I don't think that would work. Well, in the meantime, you continue as Alban in La Caja Fall. We will hope that you will be continuing past those first six I months really that were announced. Do, yeah. And we'll look forward to seeing who you take as your next lover. <laughs> <laughs> Douglas Hodge, thank you for being with us today thank on Downstage Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and need your support. We hope you'll consider helping us and sustaining our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.